Hey listeners, Jen here. I run SubChina Direct, SubChina's consulting and expertise marketplace. We help you solve all your China business problems by connecting you with China-leading experts and consultants in China and around the world. A client of ours is a New York-based fintech startup focused on the peer-to-peer lending space. You may have even read on subchina.com in our recent article called The Final Meltdown P2P in China in 2020 that the space essentially is under severe regulatory duress. Nonetheless, our client knows that the second largest economy and one day inevitably to become the first largest economy, she cannot ignore the China P2P market to achieve true global success. So after learning about her specific needs and objectives, Subchina Direct paired her with a Hong Kong-based financial services consulting firm that was first able to provide a top-down view of the industry and competitive landscape. Following that, we connected the client to a Shanghai-based executive, formerly a VP at China's largest fintech startup, who facilitated on-the-ground meetings with regulators, peer organizations, and also introduced her to her first China-based hires. If you've got aspirations or challenges related to doing business in China, SubChina Direct will help you identify and vet qualified consultants. Our network of professionals and experts cover all industries. All functions and all regions within China. Don't waste another day in looking for the right support. You can find it now at subchina.direct. China Econ Talk listeners, I am losing my edge. I'm turning 40 in four months. I can't drink two beers without getting a hangover, and I'm working full time on a podcast and newsletter that doesn't cover rent. Sad to say, but yes, losing my edge. Then again, it's no surprise that I'm turning out to be a fubuchida ado. America's technological edge, on the other hand, boy, we had high hopes for you. The U.S. went to the moon, but now can't develop a 5G ecosystem to save its life. But not to worry, because Adam Siegel, director of the Digital and Cyberspace Policy Program at the Council of Foreign Relations, alongside a host of ridiculously accomplished people, has a plan to get America its tech groove back. Adam, welcome to China Econ Talk. So you've been studying Chinese tech policy way before it was cool, and certainly way before it was inevitable that Chinese firms and researchers would have the sort of success that would prompt CFR to write a policy paper about America should respond. So speaking of gaining an edge in the first place, what do you think the Chinese system did right, particularly with respect to technology policy? Well, I, you know, I think a, a lot of what att- uh, attracts the attention of, uh, of U.S. policymakers is not what the Chinese got right. So, you know, U.S. policymakers, I think, tend to have this view of the uh, Chinese technology policy as being long range and strategic and top down. We know that the most successful parts of the Chinese、uh, tech economy are the ones that. You know, kind of grew up ignored or initially ignored by the Chinese state. But I think what what really worked for the Chinese system was just a huge amount of flexibility.、Um, that it really acted in some ways like a federal system that. Uh, localities and provinces managed to experiment with different forms and shapes, and took advantage of a you know huge inflow of capital and talent,、uh, and you know put together some amazing internet platforms.、Uh, I think there's still real questions about、uh, what type of innovation we've seen in China, but so far the system. Uh, has you know managed to be fairly fairly flexible. So, can you talk a little bit about this idea of techno nationalism and how, if at all, it's evolved since you've started studying this field? Sure. I mean, I think the the simplest way is to think 
to describe it is just to say that the, the, the Chinese have a long standing concern about dependence on foreign suppliers for critical technologies. And, and, and this has been true, you know, since the self strengthening movement, but clearly uh, under the CCP from, you know, the time of the Soviet split, split onward. And, you know, you can see a, a whole range of policies that were put in place that were designed to reduce that dependence and help Chinese producers move up the value chain. I think the you know the biggest change and is that 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 voice now dominates. You know, if you look at the 2006 uh, mid to long term plan, which you know really talked about indigenous innovation and set goals for reducing the percentage of foreign suppliers and critical technologies, that document really has has two voices. The, the first half of the document really is all of a kind of a techno nationalism, top down mega projects. Uh, the state is going to drive us kind of voice. The second half of the of the paper is really let's create uh, ecosystems of of innovation. Let's support IP. Let's support entrepreneurship. And I think what's really happened under Xi is that those voices have have really have lost traction. You just don't hear them very much. And the, and the dominant voice is really the one of indigenous innovation, self-reliance, uh, secure and controllable. So why do you think that narrative won out over the second one? I think in part, you know, it, it, it fits uh, Xi Jinping's vision of what the Chinese economy should, should look like. It, it's driven in part by the parties, I think, desire for control over these technologies that it sees are going to be uh, critical to, to governance, to, to, to uh, control of the population, to competition, to national security. Um, I think, you know, the, 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 the conflict with the United States um, uh, has also made it much harder to um, those voices to really uh, argue that the way that China has moved up the value chain is by being open and cooperative. Uh, and so the tech war, Snowden revelations, all of those things together um, also undermine those voices. Um, so where do SOEs fit into this model? So you know, the SOEs, um, you know, for a large part were not particularly important players in the in the Chinese R&D system you know a lot of it was happening uh, at the Chinese Academy of Science um and SOEs had large R&D budgets, but not very much was com- coming out of it. And so, you know, what we saw in the 80s and 90s uh, is an attempt to both kind of increase the uh, efficacy of the S- SOEs R&D budgets uh, and tighten their links to academia and other parts of the economy. Uh, it's been marginally successful. Uh, the R&D budgets have gone up. Um, but I still think that probably the the most interesting innovation is uh, and R and D is happening out, outside of the SOEs. Um, what, what's particular about the, the 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 Chinese Academy of Sciences? Was it based on um, on Western models, and what 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 have they um, uh, done differently in their uh, in their system of doing this more basic research? Yeah, it was it was based on the the Chinese academies were based on the Russian model, and so the idea was that you would have all of these high level R and D institutes uh, in specific fields with the best researchers there. The problem was, you know, especially in the seventies and eighties. 
was that th- these institutes had very little, uh, if no connection to, to industry. And what you saw in the late 80s and 90s were reforms that were designed to increase those connections and also uh, incentivize the academies or pe- academicians to start their own companies. Um, so the first generation of people who, you know, Xiao Hai, who jumped into the sea, started that first generation of Chinese uh, software and, and uh, hardware companies. So uh, Lenovo, which was legend before that, you know, came out of the Chinese Academy of, uh, of Sciences. What we've seen since then is, you know, the incentives for the labs, you know, the labs had their um, central support cut. They had to find other sources of money. And so that also drove them closer to the market. And they have gotten better at uh, being able to provide the the basic research that will one day hopefully be um, commercialized. And the, But they're still fairly focused on kind of uh, applied and, and development on the commercial side. Sure. Let's come to this uh, the, the, this report you recently put out. Um, first off, I'm I'm curious uh, because the the sort of list of um, you know pe- members of this task force is so um, impressive that I'm curious what the sort of structure was, how you guys decided to um, work together, and if anything uh, if anything particularly interesting uh, happened engaging with uh, so many people from so many different fields. I mean, just for instance, we have you know Eric Schmidt, we had Reed Hoffman, we have Admiral McRaven. Um, this combination. Yeah of like military folks, Silicon Valley academics um, who don't always sit around and, and, and write long papers together. Yeah, so ta- the way the task forces are set up, um, basically they, they, they're, they're out of the executive office at the council. So, you know, out of the president's office, they're, they're independent. So basically they're set up and then the chairs and myself uh, and the task force members, you know, are the ones who write it with no other kind of feedback from the from the institution. The members mainly uh, of the task force are, are drawn from the council membership. I, I, I think almost everyone, there might be one or two people who are not, you know, council mm-hmm. members in, in some way or another. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, th- there is a lot going on now, I think between the Valley and the policy community, especially after Snowden revelations, there was, you know, a kind of Western migration of all the think tanks that said, oh, we should actually be talking to the tech community more um and you know the council is just one of the think tanks that 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 does this you know csis when they did their last cybersecurity report they had you know two groups one in the west coast one on the east coast um i could probably go through the number of the other think tanks have have this kind of attempt to reach out to to the to the tech community i think the you know the the most um kind of contentious issue in the report or kind of the one that we spent the most time trying to come up with the consensus was and this is what you know, Adam McRaven received the headlines for when we rolled out the report is, is how to describe this, how to describe this moment. And um, McRaven described it as our oh shit moment. Um, <laughs> but the question was, you know, h- how hyperbolic or h- how do we want to describe the risk? And in particular, how do we describe China? And so that, you know, there were some people who, uh, you know, really wanted to hammer home the risk from China. There were others who, you know, basically said the report should be about more than China, which I, 
you know, there is a paragraph in the report that, that does say that, but that I think was the thing that we were constantly kind of moving around and trying to, to, to figure out. You know, a lot of the people on the task force are involved in other efforts. So, you know, the uh, the, the DIM, the Defense Innovation Board, uh, Reed Hoffman and Eric Schmidt, um, uh, Admiral McRaven used to be a member of that. They all sit on that as well. So there's a lot of kind of uh, ideas that are common to us and I think are in circulation in the in the policymaking community right now. Yeah, no, it, it, it's really interesting when uh, like the, the thought process behind trying to push um, domestic reforms uh, and and to what extent China is driving them and like whether there are potential dangers to over over um, uh, you know overreacting to uh, to the to the Chinese threat. So interesting that in your um, in this 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 little group was sort of a microcosm of of to what extent people really wanted to frame China as a real uh, challenge. Do you see any downsides to overplaying the? Um, uh, the the risk the U.S. faces. I think there there are you know kind of two two major ones. I think the one of them is we don't want to frame all all of Chinese scientific and technological progress as a risk to the United States. You know there are so many common issues, global issues that that the world would benefit from more innovation from, and and we we don't want to get into a world where we're we're seeing every step forward for china as as a step backwards for the united states right when i get a when i get a headache i don't really care that the germans were the ones who invented aspirin first i just i'm glad we all have aspirin well, well, um, well, adam have you been watching the watchman i have not no okay well there's a there's a pill where like or i, I no uh, no spoilers here on the china econ talk show you don't come for that anyway <laughs> um and i think the second issue is you know the is one that lots of people have talked about is there's so many things that that are happening that are designed to try and slow china down that have the potential to do real self-damage to the u.s innovation side and you know, here in particular, people talk about you know possible restrictions on students or uh, export controls that are overly broad, Cepheus uh, ref- ref- uh, reviews that are also overly broad. So th- those, I think, are the real the main concerns. Is you know, not everything should be competitive, and and we want to make sure we don't shoot ourselves in the foot. So Adam, that said, you do write that America is facing uh, significant challenges. So in in broad strokes, what do you think are the main uh, breakpoints? that uh, the U.S. sort of technological industrial complex has been uh, hitting over the past decade? We focus primarily on um, kind of three three issues. The, the, the first one, of course, is the federal spending uh, support of, of basic R&D, which has dropped um, and has been flat for, for quite a while now and plays an important, incredibly important role in kickstarting U.S. innovation. Uh, the second is really the kind of talent issue and, and, and the human pipeline and then the third, we talk about the interaction between the DOD and private sector and how uh, accessing technologies in the private sector is, is uh, important to uh, U.S. military uh, capabilities. And the DOD is still struggling with, the, with those connections. Sure. So let's start with uh, basic R&D. You know, as you just said, you know, pretty central to your argument that America is losing this edge is that the percentage of federal R&D spending as a percentage of GDP has dropped pretty dramatically since the end of the Cold War. Um, And one of the central recommendations being that the U.S. should increase federal funding from its current level of uh, about 
150 billion up to 230 billion. Um, so I'm curious, first off, is there any sense that um, there is 70 billion dollars of basic research out there that needs um, this sort of funding? Or maybe there are some sort of dynamics happening where basic research is cheaper or less important than it used to be? I think we probably could easily go through uh, good research grants to the NSF, the National Science Foundation, or the NIH, the National Institute of Health. Um, you know, both of those organizations are you know not funding as much as they would they would like to. I, I don't. I think you know the issue would be um, ensuring that the rollout of that money is kind of gradual and steady. In the in the past, when we've doubled research budgets, the problem has always been it, it then disappears, and you know universities overbuild and researchers get get stranded. I don't I don't think there's any issue. I, I, I think we we can find the money to spend pretty 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 quickly. The issue is, and we talk about in the report, is is that you know so much of the money uh, on research and development is being spent in the private sector. And that R&D money just doesn't do the same thing. It's mostly focused on, you know, commercialization and application. It isn't the uh, big kind of paradigm changing research in in the kind of basic building blocks of of science and and technology. Uh, And kind of historically, it's really only government uh, support that provides the stability and the and the kind of riskiness, the 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 willingness to take those blue sky risks that, that that can do it. So so say the US does invest more money in basic R&D and that does end up speeding technological progress. Why does it matter which country ends up doing this basic research in the first place? Yeah, and I, you know, I think that is quite honestly part of the response we've heard from the hill from from congressional staffers. I mean, I think one is that they tell us don't don't tell us to spend any more money. We you know, we hear that all the time. That's just not going to happen. And then second and somebody, you know, several people did say to me, look, what, you know, if we spend the money on the basic R&D, then others are going to, um, you know, they can, it's, it's basic R&D, it's publicly available. So they, they are going to, uh, other places can take advantage either through stealing it or, or just, you know, developing it themselves. So I, I think there is, you know, some concern that, um, you want to make sure you protect it, uh, uh, at least into the commercialization uh, stage, to the extent that you, you know, stay with norms about openness. Um, I think also you, you do have to think about the uh, other parts of the recommendations, which are not as well developed in the task force, but I think are important about uh, supporting manufacturing in the states, uh, working on kind of um, linking the R&D to local ecosystems of, of, of manufacturing and development. Um, you know, uh, under the Obama administration, there was a, a initiative called uh, American Manufacturing. I think now it's called Manufacturing Inc. or Man- Manufacturing America, which is a series of ex- uh, kind of university extensions and um, cooperative research that would tie it to, to local manufacturing and, and to local, uh, local jobs and local development. You know, I think there's something to be said for, um, you know, even if the research is going to be made in the public domain, the fact that it's happening, you know, in the U.S., the grad students who are going to be the ones who end up creating the companies are the ones who will have worked on these papers and stealing you know, breakthrough technology isn't the most straightforward thing. And just because you have the blueprints doesn't necessarily mean you have the sort of like the like the know how the experience to um, to really um, you know, commercialize this stuff. So I think there's there there is, I'd argue, some value in uh, in doing it, uh, doing it locally. 
Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. I, I think, um, you know, when you look at um, some of the most successful kind of interventions uh, that the U.S. government has made in this space, um, uh, a lot of it is not, um, you know, the basic R&D matters, but also what matters is, as you said, kind of the, uh, the training of um, graduate students, the bringing people together across um Different, uh, interdisciplinary, you know, interdisciplinary work, um, uh, connections between industry and academia, um, and all of that stuff is incredibly hard to, to replicate. Um, and as you said, you know, even if you steal the information, there's a huge amount of tacit knowledge that, that really uh, is necessary for, for commercializing products. The other question, which is sort of, um, you know, I don't necessarily expect you to have an answer for, but it, it's interesting to think about what if there are the, the new breakthroughs that this um, marginal increase in uh, basic research contributes to ends up flattening the balance of power instead of reinforcing America's edge. So how, how would that work? Well, I don't know. Like, think about drones, right? This drones are like a new thing that's been invented recently. And, you yeah. know, one can argue that... Um, this has made terrorist lives easier or something, or like it's, you know, right. like technical innovations that would change the balance of power to make a, uh, you know, make, make it easier for, you know, say China to, to compete militarily with the U S or what have you. Right. Yeah. I, I think that's, you know, that's certainly true. I, um, I, but I think the, the, the kind of kind of railing point to that is, is that, you know, the, there are so, you know, the U.S. does not monopolize most of these spaces, and the innovation is going to happen in lots of different places. So, there, you know, if the U.S. doesn't do it, somebody else will um, will probably do it. And, and that, I think, you know, is one of the other themes that we tried to hit on the report, that, that the, one of the U.S.'s great strengths has always been its, its connections um, to other centers of, uh, of innovation. Um, and so... You know, you want to make that sure that those remain uh, robust and um, you don't do damage to them, which would which would in the end slow us down. So, um, so let's now turn to uh, industry R and D, which you um, earlier dismissed. Um, but I have a long wind up to a, a, a question for us to potentially reconsider that. So, you know, looking at this, uh, describing this graph for you guys, basically federal um, uh, federal R and D spending as a percentage of GDP dropped from a high of two percent right after the Sputnik era when NASA was in full swing and is now down around 05 percent. But industry R and D um, in the '60s was, you know two-thirds of a percent and is now all the way up to two percent of GDP. So you argue that industry is not funding research and development that leads to new breakthroughs in science and engineering and spurs commercial growth later. Um, But interestingly, in the report, you cite the sort of classic example of really path-breaking industry uh, research of Bell Labs, which of course was a a monopoly before um, the government decided to break it up into the baby bells. And, you know, one of, uh, interestingly, like the, the firm that seems to be doing the craziest stuff with Alphabet and, and, and Waymo and whatnot, um, that is a big company, is, is Google, um, that you know, some are arguing today has a monopoly. 
So what impact, if any, would antitrust regulation have um, for the relevance uh, for this industry R&D? Yeah, you know, it, it was an interesting question. I hadn't, I hadn't thought of it that way. And um, we didn't really breach um, antitrust or anti-monopoly legislation. I'm not sure the comparison works uh, in, the, in the extent of just, you know, part of the problem is, again, is just the research that they're, that that the companies are funding right now. And um, it's not as if Google doesn't have enough money to do R&D. It is just that so far, the kind of the moonshot Project X part of the R&D has not been uh, particularly successful. And, and a company is basically kind of seems to be phasing most of that out. So I'm not sure it's an issue of how much money they have to spend. I think right now it's just it's the incentives and kind of their ability to do it. You know, we we did there were several times in the report where we had um, attempts to try to think about how could you recreate uh, a Bell Labs like thing in the United States. And we couldn't come up with a with a quite honestly a recommendation that made sense, just given the tools that the U.S. government have and, and what the private sector wants to do. So we were just left with the sense that it was just not going to be recreated. And, you know, again, the, the, the private sector's uh, R&D is just so much more uh, – uh, kind of right of right of boom. It's it's a develop uh, it, you know in development and and applications, um, and you're just really missing out, um, and you can't just you just can't replace that sign, the 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 government funding. So, how do you feel about um, Facebook's talking point that America should keep its tech firms big to compete with Chinese ones? Because you know this this I understand your focus on the long term fundamental research, but people also want you, you know Western companies to win out over Huawei and 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 Xiaomi and and DJI and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, I I, I don't think that that's been a particularly successful argument. I I, I think. Um, uh, you know, again, maybe you know, Facebook. The 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 it was clearly an attempt to try and distract and and um, from the anti-monopoly and the anti-competitiveness uh, investigations. I, I, I have this. I have not seen any um, uh, kind of argument that that convinces me that you know th- that we have to worry about their global competitiveness vis-a-vis the the Chinese because of, because of these, this, this regulation, uh, you know, uh, and again, a lot of the technologies we're talking about are, are, we're not talking about, you know, Facebook, we're, uh, we're talking about things that are being developed, you know, uh, that are you know, more on the hardware side or more on the manufacturing side, you know, Facebook is doing important work in AI, but I just, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't think anyone's really buying that argument. Well, I mean, there there is a there is an interesting uh, side to it where you, um, you know, if you want the U.S. to sort of like control the way free speech works around the world, it's probably better for for Facebook and Google products than than Chinese products to be the ones that people are are, are using. So, you know, even though even though you know you might want to define tech competitiveness as you know who's who's making the hardware. Um, there's still uh, there's still an aspect of of this sort of thing from uh, from uh, okay we ha- we can afford more AI researchers so our recommendation algorithms for your YouTube videos are better so then you're going to stay on YouTube as opposed to um, whatever Chinese platform that's going to try to go abroad. Yeah, I mean that, I think that's you know certainly right if you're using an American platform as opposed to a Chinese platform, um, it matters. But you know if we were really I, I think probably a more important long term to the to that 
com- competition over over values would be um, you know domestically getting regulation about content moderation and privacy protection and you know having a consistent and coherent kind of argument um, you know that would either be complementary to or somehow um, provide different uh, protections than than the you know the GDPR and um, you know that that I think would be long term more more important to, to kind of promoting a free and open internet than you know than protecting the the size of Facebook. Sure. So one of the things you recommend do you you recommend the U.S. to do is pursue a, a moonshot strategy. So how would you structure these, and and how if at all are they, uh, or would you have them differ uh, from Chinese technology pushes? Yeah, I, I think the you know the the structure is is fairly vague in the report, kind of purposely. So I I think you you want to frame it around. Um, questions or kind of challenges that you want addressed and are, and so that they're they're both kind of technology neutral and participant neutral so you know cybersecurity or global pandemic or um, certain questions in in quantum or uh, semiconductor manufacturing and then you know basically try to bring the right people together and and then fund competing kind of technology approaches to that to that problem I think the difference from the Chinese approach is that the you know the Chinese have been very kind of clear about all right this is the technology we're going to compete in uh, here is the 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 technology we think uh, we, we want to be competitive in here is the the metric for success and you know he, here is the, the national champion or the uh, the, the agency the the um, branch of the Chinese Academy of Science, whoever that's going to lead it. So I think more prescriptive than, than this moonshot approach is. And, you know, the U.S., we always like to say we don't have industrial policy, but of course we have kind of different types of industrial policy. But this is, a, I think, a less less hands-on. I think the problem for the U.S. side is you have to remind Congress and the people that fund it that there's going to be failures, which Congress doesn't like to hear. But you, ha- you have to remind, remember that there's going to be, um, you know, some of these things just don't work. Yeah, I mean the last uh, the last time America had a big push, we had Solyndra, right? And even though it, you know, you, some can argue it can, it could create this big this big new green revolution in the U.S. At the same time, this was for um, was for a moment the biggest scandal in the White House was that they funded some solar panel company that went bust. Um, you know, interesting thinking about uh, the way you sort of described Chinese industrial moonshot policy sounded a fair amount like the criticisms you leveled at the Pentagon in the way that they. Do you, um, traditional procurement. Uh, yeah, that's right. Um, you know, like you, <laughs> two massive bureaucracies who, you know, have a great deal of oversight, rightfully so, um, and are trying to build build, build a humongous platform. So, you know, that what the what the kind of discussion of the DoD procurement, we we you know try to get the balance right. There's some things like that are still going to have are going to act traditionally and, and slowly. When you build, you know, an aircraft carrier, it's very hard to, you know, you're not going to do it with a swipe of a, of a credit card. But if you're going to do smaller, more uh, more early stage capital intensive types of uh, technologies, then you, you really have to restructure. And like I said, there's a, been a huge amount of work coming out of the, the DIB, the Defense Innovation Board, that I'm kind of trying to address this address this problem. So so one of the things uh, you focus on in your report is the civil military divide. You know, there have been these headline making stories of um, Google uh, employees protesting their work with the Defense Department. Um, 
But, you know, reading this report sort of made me think back to the the stories of old Silicon Valley and what made it special in the first place was the fact that there were all these hippies there. Um, so I guess my question for you is, you know, would, would the U.S. really be in a better place today if this culture gap had never formed? And if Silicon Valley really does go super square, um, is there something that the U.S. may lose from a, from a dynamism perspective? Yeah, I mean, look, the, the Silicon Valley itself, you know, a lot of that the hippies were certainly there, but the hippies came after the, the government money, right? If um, I think of Margaret, <laughs> sure. O'Mara, Margaret, Mara, Margaret Mara's book, you know, makes it pretty clear that, um, you know, and that government funding and defense contracts were, you know, incredibly important to Fairchild and, and all the other semiconductor companies. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't think you want to homogenize, right? You don't, and you certainly don't want the tech companies to become like the defense contractors. And I, I think the issue is more, you, you certainly want to have a, a um, ecosystem that is that has a great deal of diversity in it. And some will work with the DOD and, so, and some won't. I think the issue has really been about transparency and kind of communication with uh, employees. Um, and, I, you know, I get the sense that they're, they're going to work this out. I mean, you know, Google may have uh, not decided to renew its contract on Project Maven, but they've been pretty clear the last six months uh, to the year that they will continue working with the DOD and, and want to find new contracts to work with the DOD. So one of the things you're focusing on is this idea of the U.S. having a role as the central node of global research and development. Um, and I'm curious if you think that given the Chinese emphasis on sort of self-reliance, if there's a world in which China could ever really get there and become this um, this really powerful other pole that, that draws on other um, places besides uh, domestic Chinese research. I think it's hard. Um, you know, I, I think certainly money has helped a lot, right? I mean, we there's you know certainly in a number of prominent cases of you know very accomplished scientists who have been lured to China given the amount of money that that they can spend on their on new labs and and graduate students and, and research fellows. Um, you know, the the report quotes some some statistics that came out of I think a study out of Science or Nature I can't remember which about you know how much money the Chinese Academy of Science has spent along BRI along the Belt and Road. Um, so money certainly helps, but I, I do think yes that you know generally. Um, there's not a huge amount of people who are who, from a quality of life stand, standpoint, see living in China as they do, you know, living in Boston or, or San Francisco. Um, and I, I would expect that, you know, given the, the the larger trends in Chinese society under Xi right now, that China is not going to become more attractive in the short term. Um, so yes, I think in the clearly. In the, in the short term, that's, that's harder for China to do. So another dynamic that you guys break into is um, this this not necessarily being a U.S.-China thing as a, as much as a U.S. rest of world dynamic. And it's certainly a common argument you 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 hear with folks saying, you know, America really needs to liberalize its um, its its immigration policies. Um, but on the other hand, you know, when you when you wrote that, oh man, the U.S. may lose like top research. Um, uh, top researchers to Australia or Canada um, or the UK uh, from from a sort of like you know power like balance of power competitive like West versus China dynamic like does it really matter all that much if these folks are are working at you know the um, the 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 Google Research Center in Alberta as opposed to the one in Silicon Valley? 
Yeah, probably not. I mean, I think that's a that's an interesting point that from a kind of alliance perspective, it strengthens all the players. I think, you know, going back to our discussion, maybe whatever it was 10 minutes ago about the positive externalities that are created by uh, these research projects happening in the U.S. that, it, that you know, as an American citizen, I probably want them to happen here as opposed to Vancouver. Um, but yes, I, I think from a kind of balance of power perspective, I prefer Vancouver to, to Shenzhen. So say China was in fact losing its edge or coming up on the U.S. faster than the current consensus. Would you change any of these recommendations? I don't think so. I mean, I think, you know, both, both the one we tried to say that all these things in the report we, we should do no matter, you know, kind of beyond China or in, in, despite China, um, you know, we should do them anyways. Um, so I, I think for the most part, um, uh, no, we wouldn't change it. And that, that actually is kind of slightly depressing or sad about it because if the, you know, you, you can go through and look at similar task force or commissions every decade, basically. And, you know, there was a, um, the last one that probably get, gathered the most attention was called the, uh, the Gathering Storm, which was out of the U.S. National Academies. And it was about 2007 or eight, if I remember correctly. And it talked about the, the rise of China and India as well, as, but also just broadly the globalization of science and technology. And, you know, the, 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 man, most of the recommendations are very similar. You know, how, how do you deal with basic R&D? What do you do about, um, you know, the, the, the um, uh, ensuring the pipeline for STEM talent, uh, immigration, all, all these issues? And so, you know, these, these are, and then at that time, the, the worry about China was really, you know, pretty vague. People said, oh, yes, China will, will move up, but it, was, it didn't really seem like a real challenge at the time. So I, I think these things are kind of, unfortunately, kind of perennial problems. Um, and and the solutions we came up with are, were kind of perennial solutions to how do, you, how do you reinvigorate U.S. innovation. So so in, 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 in light of that, do you have more faith in the U.S. or the Chinese system to make uh positive tech policy reforms? Uh, I'm generally more optimistic about the U.S.'s ability than, than I am the, the, the Chinese. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, you, you listed a lot of the headwinds that, that she is facing right now. Um, I, I do think there are some real serious questions about um, how innovative the Chinese system really is. Um, you know, they've gotten very far by spending a lot of money uh, and having a lot of talent, but so far have, you know, we, we don't know what the system is going to be like under more severe strain. Um, and so, you know, assuming that, and you know, unfortunately this is a pretty big assumption right now, but assuming we get back to some type of normal politics, um, depending upon who wins the next election, um, then, you know, we, I think we will do many of the, of the right, of the right things. Adam Siegel, thanks so much for being a part of China Econ Talk. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. China Econ Talk is edited by Jason MacRonald and Kaiser Guo and is a proud member of the Seneca Network from China. For other great shows on China, check out the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, the New Voices Podcast, and of course, the Seneca Podcast, now in its ninth year. Until next week. Yeah, look at me.
照相。嫉妒的眼睛能在网上将八十一的女王出现，快点都给我让开！我从来不戴眼看他们设下的障碍，一换来换去怎么办？一选择头疼，这里好星星，这才星油门，女王的心意，耀眼的星星，时尚的记忆，搭配什么看我的心情？你可以亲吻我的戒指，但不能碰我皇冠。